upon a time, just like in a nursery rhyme, before picking on swine. We did wear from the fear upon the face like a shield, like a mask. And everybody takes me cool and tell me. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Today, my guest comes all the way from Brixton, from London, England, um, originally from Jamaica, Linton Quasi Johnson. The, uh, has been hailed as the first dub poet, as a legend in Europe for his poetry, music, politics, and performance. His books include the 1974 title Voices of the Living Dead, the 1995 title Dread Beat and Blood, the 1980 title England is a Bitch, the 1991 title Me Revolutionary Friend came out in England and was published by Penguin in the modern classic series, making uh, Johnson currently the only living poet in the modern classic series. And that book is forthcoming in the U.S. from a usable press. It'll come out both in print and with an accompanying CD shortly. He has been awarded the Silver Musgrave Medal in Jamaica, which is the second highest award the Institute of Jamaica awards, and that was in 2005. He's toured Asia, South America, Africa, and Europe with his music and band and and reading poetry. And um, he... When I told folks here at the station that we were going to interview him, I got all kinds of wonderful emails. One of them said his anthem, Smash Their Brains In, provided the soundtrack to many anti-fascist demonstrations in my college days back in Berlin, Germany. And um, Johnson will be reading when we start in just a moment from Things and Times. And when that came out, um, one of our DJs was working in the book purchasing unit in the library, and she and a coworker read it out loud to each other as soon as it was unpacked. So um, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Um, The same person who read your book, Things and and Times, when she first unpacked in the library, also said that she had wanted to see you when you read it. Detroit Institute of the Arts some time back, and um, she says, he's one of those legends I never thought I'd have a chance to actually hear in person, and so she's hoping to catch your reading here this week. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to have you in the studio with us. Well, as is our usual, I wonder if you would start out by reading a bit from your work. Um, this is Base Culture for Big Youth, one of my um, earliest attempts at uh, writing verse. Music of blood black reared pain rooted heart geared. All ten stopped in the bubble and the bounce and the leap and the weight drop. It is the beat of the heart. This pulsing of blood that is a bubbling bass, a bad, bad beat, pushing against the wall where bar black blood. And is a whole heap of passion together, like a frightful farm, like a righteous harm, giving off wild like his madness. Bad out there. Hotter than the heights of fire living heat down volcano core, is the cultural wave a dread people deal. Spirits riled and rise and real thunder wise. Latent power in a farm resembling madness like violence is the show. Bursting out a slave shackle. Look ya, bound for harm the wicked. Man feel, him hurt confirm. Man sight, destruction all around. Man turn, love still confirm. Him destiny a shine light wise. 
So life take the farm where shift from calm and hold the way of a deadly storm. Culture pulsing high temperature, blood swinging hunger, shattering the tightened hold, the falls fold round flesh where we all freedom. Bitter cause of blues, cause of maggot suffering, cause of blood clad pressure. Yet still breathing love, far more mellow than the sound of shapes chanting loudly. Scatter matter, shatter shock, what a beat. For the time is nigh when passion get a high, when the beat just lash, when the wall must smash. And the beat will shift as the culture alter, when oppression scatter. Thank you very much. That's Linton Kwesi Johnson reading from his book, Things and... Which, wait, actually, which one is that? Things and yeah, Times. Yeah, Things and Times. Um, which, uh, and that was from a, a piece that was written in the 70s, I believe. Is that? That was written in the early 70s, yeah. And um, when that was around the time that you moved... Well, no, you've been in London for a while. Let's talk a little bit about Roots. You, you said in a conversation earlier that your parents came from the generation that the land couldn't contain anymore. They went off to the urban centers. And your mother left Jamaica and went to uh, London, where you joined her when you were 11. Um, and you described yourself as a barefoot peasant boy who moved to London. Um, oh, what a shock. <laughs> I wonder if you'd talk to us a little bit about what it was like to leave your island home, go to London, and start writing verse. I was very excited about going to London um, I w- um, firstly um, I missed my mother and secondly the prospects of going to the mother country so to speak was very exciting and uh, you know you had picture book, a picture book uh, idea of what London was literally imagining that the streets of London were paved with gold and everyone went around in, in horse drawn carriages and you know, and everyone lived in palaces and this sort of thing. I, I was not prepared for the rude awakening when I got there and saw all these grey, gloomy-looking buildings with smoke coming out of the chimneys. I thought they were all factories. Um, so it was a, um, a bit of a traumatic experience, actually. And uh, the shock, the shock of my life was to see a white person sweeping the street because in Jamaica, where I come from, the old, the old colonial society, the whites um, are at the apex of the society, and um, they are, they, you know, they were the colonial masters. So uh, in a child's imagination, you couldn't imagine that uh, uh, white people um, did menial jobs. And um, was that sort of a politicizing moment? You joined the Black Panther Party when you, were, you went to, was it Goldsmiths? College for yeah, I went to the University of London, Goldsmiths College. But uh, before that, I went to Tulsil Secondary School in South London. Um, what politicized me was just my experience as a, as a black youth growing up in England in a racially hostile environment. It was um, not very long before you... Um, came in contact with racism uh, from school, from, from the time you enter school and schoolboys start to abuse you and call you a black bastard and a black monkey and tell you that you live in trees and all kinds of stuff. And teachers uh, with their attitudes. Um, the school I went to, um, most of the black boys from the Caribbean, we were in the lower stream. The school was divided into three streams, A, B, and C. A was like the middle-class kids. It was a comprehensive, secondary comprehensive school. A stream was for like the middle-class kids. B stream was for 
kids coming from semi-skilled backgrounds, parents, and um, the sea stream, working class, immigrants, and so on. Um, I eventually ended up in the B stream, but began in the C stream, where most of my contemporaries from the Caribbean were. And they, they had low expectations of you. Your parents were invited to do the jobs that the white working class didn't want to do anymore in the post-World World War II reconstruction of England. And um, you were not supposed to have any kind of aspirations um, above working in the factories or working on the buses or working in the hospitals. Um, it was out of the question to aspire to become an accountant or an engineer or anything like that. Now, this is important, the, the, post, um, the post-World War II reconstruction phase of England. Um, that was a time when emig- many immigrants came from the Caribbean to work in these jobs that um, English people had no longer wanted to do. And, and that, parts of Europe, too. And parts yeah. of Europe. And that means that the black experience in England is very different from the black experience here in the U.S. It's a totally different history. Of course, it's a different experience. But what the Caribbean blacks... Um, share with our African-American um, brothers and sisters is, this, is the, the history of slavery and the, the plantation experience. Uh, so we have a lot of things in common. And so in college you joined the Black Panthers and that was when you started writing poetry? No, actually at school I joined the Black Panthers. Um, I was a teenager. Um, and I, I remember the Black Power salute of those athletes in the 1968 Olympics. And I remembered um, the only black hero we had at that time um, for us non-politicized youth was uh, Muhammad Ali. And um, then came the assassination of Malcolm X, um, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and black power. There was a whole, that whole black consciousness thing uh, was washing both sides of the Atlantic and it affected uh, all, nearly all the youths of my generation, black youth of my generation. And um, that's how I became politically engaged. Now, when your book was picked up, Me Revolutionary Friend, by Penguin Classics and, and published in the, in the Modern Classics series, which until Me Wash's death, you two were the only living poets in, the, in the, this classics um, series, um, the Daily Telegraph, a major London newspaper, said something like, Dub Poet Joins the Immortals, mm-hmm. um, which took your work from a context you've called yourself, as you said in an earlier conversation, that you hail from a little tradition. Um, I'd, I'd love it if you would explain what that means, because joining the sort of canon of the modern classics puts you in um, the realm of the well, immortal. Of course, there's the idea of the great tradition of... Um classical literature, um, the canon that everybody studies at university and that you have to immerse yourself in to become a poet. But alongside exists other traditions from other cultures, um, which um, not necessarily has anything to do um, with Shakespeare and, and Chaucer and so on, but it has to do with the folk to do with um, folk songs, to do with work songs, to do with um, the, the, the word games that children play and so on. So I was immersed in that, and that's where I began, that's where I came from. And um, the little tradition is really um, connected with um, oral, oral cultures, um, cultures where orality is still alive and... Um, um, very much a part of the fabric of of the cultural lives of of of, of those societies 
Uh, and I, I see myself, I've always seen myself as belonging to that tradition. To the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Will you talk a little bit more about what that was like in Jamaica? Um, what you mentioned about something about the King James Bible and reading it too. Well, um, and works the Bible there. is, is um, although uh, written, um, um, it's, although the Bible is a book, in, in Jamaica, um, when I was a kid, and even today, it's, it's, it's very much part of the oral culture. A lot of people who can't read or write can quote you passages from the Bible because you're taught it from Sunday school, parrot fashion, and you, you know, you learn um, parts of the, um, especially the Old Testament, um, and some parts of the New Testament by heart. And you often invoke that in everyday conversation. And are these rhythms then, the, you, um, the work songs that you heard growing up in the Bible and um, skipping songs, I believe, mm, yeah. are these um, rhythms that inform your aesthetic and your choices? Or Yeah, these, um, are, these rhythms um, um, alerted me to the fact that there is, lang- there is music in language. And um, when I was uh, a teenager, I was a big reggae fan, and I was very much interested in um, the talking tunes. For example, um, these were just um, reggae rhythms um, or rocksteady rhythms in those days with a straight narrative. Um, For example, there was a, a tune by Prince Buster, called the Ten, Command, uh, ten, the ten Commandments, where he's um, using the ten, co- the, 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 the ten Commandments from the Bible um, as, a, as a way to um, make a very humorous um, um, rap, if you like, um, about what, he, what, what uh, he expects from a woman in terms of fidelity and so on. Like commandment number one, thou shall have no other man but me. Two, thou shall remember to kiss and caress me, honor <laughs> and obey me, and so on and so forth. But it's straight talking, you know. Um, and tunes like um, Ghost Dance, where he's writing a letter to a dear departed friend in the underworld and asking him how things are, what things are like down there, and so on. Um, Amiri Baraka also talks about um, the talking blues, how that influenced him and, and um, gave him a sense of what poetry was when he, when he got started. And, of course, later on there was the reggae DJs who would take um, a dub version or a German bass version of a piece of a popular rhythm and improvise um, new lyrics often more more um more often than not topical about you know things going on in the, in the society uh, while at the same time spurring on the revelers in the dance hall and those those were uh, my first influences before I began to actually read poetry well let's take a listen um a brief listen to the poem that you read to start the show is called Bass Culture which you also have released on CD as a music track and let's take a brief listen to that and we'll be right back. You're tuned into the Living Writers show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Linton Quasi Johnson. We'll be right back. This is his track Bass Culture. Music of blood black reared pain rooted that geared. All ten stopped in the bubble and the bounce and the leap and the withdraw. It is the beat of the heart. 
face Pulsing of blood that is a bubbling base A bad, bad beat Pushing it <coughs> That's Linton Quasi Johnson with Bass Culture Linton Crazy Johnson is my guest today on the Living Writers Show, and you're tuned to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. When the bass culture, the poem that you read at the beginning of the show, and that is featured in the song, the track that we just played a bit of, is written in um, Jamaican Creole, or as Kamal Brathwit has called it, the nation language. Or some people call it Jamaican English. Or some people call it Jamaican English, and you have referred to it as your first language. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you talk a little bit about your choice to write in um, Jamaican English or your first well, language. Um, at first I began, when I started to try my hand at writing verse, I was, I was writing in English. Um, but um, I felt uncomfortable with it. And some of the, my early poems that I showed to people in the know said to me that, um, you know, um, they, they, they're okay. But um, my early attempts at writing in the Jamaican language, they felt that, um, um, you know, the, the, those efforts were better. And it seems to make sense to me um, to write in my first language rather than try to... Um, Right, and purely in English, I'm, you know, those of us who come from places like Jamaica, we're basically bilingual. We have um, the English language and we have something else which is not quite English and which is not quite African, um, but has elements of both. Some a kind of a hybrid language. And it seemed to me to make sense to, to, to use that language. I was comfortable with it, and it was the language of the the experience um, about of those people um, about which I was writing, and it, it seems to make sense that if you want to com- communicate to the people you're writing about, you should do so in their language rather than the rarefied language of classical English poetry. And you've mentioned that um, a, a big important um, piece of your work is writing work that is accessible, that is for the people and of the people you're working on. Um, I've heard you use a quote, people ignore poetry because poetry ignores people. Yes, an English poet named Adrian Mitchell once said that, and um, I think he's he's absolutely right. Um, um, But people assume that because you're writing oral poetry or you're writing in dialect or whatever, um, there's no craft involved. Craft is involved in any art form, um, and um, the the um, the criteria or the, the conventions of composition that um, is avail is is available to one working in, in an oral context are not necessarily the same as those criteria for one who's writing in a purely um, scribal uh, context, and um, I think that's why I'm. Um, a lot of literary critics can't really make head or tails of what I write because they don't know where I'm coming from. They don't have any frame of reference to attack it from. <laughs> you haven't given them the ammunition. Well, I wonder if you do occasionally write in English um, and not just in Jamaican English. And I wonder if you'd read one of those poems for us and talk a little bit about what goes into that choice when you do choose to switch codes and write. This Which? one is from um, Me Revolutionary Friend Selected Poems, Seasons of the Heart. Well, I'll tell you about it first and then read it. Um, 
The only thing I want to say about this poem, really, is that um, I hadn't written a poem in English for a long time, and I was wondering if I could still do it. And secondly, I wanted um, to um, let people know that I had, in fact, read some English poetry. <laughs> Just to show me you were choosing to do what you were doing. <laughs> Beguiled by blue moon, oh, enchanting light. We lost our way like lovers sometimes do, searching wide-eyed for wildflowers in the fragrant forest of the night. Now memories slowly drift on by like gray clouds against the somber winter sky, and all our yesterdays are now become the springtime of our days. Life is the greatest teacher. Love is the lesson to be learnt. Like how the heart's seasons shift, how the sweet-smelling blossoms of spring are soon become the icy arrows of winter's sting. How spring, intoxicated by the sun, now throws off her green gown, and summer's golden smile is now become the frown of autumn's brown. How passion spent we droop like sapless vines in the winter of our minds. Thank you. That's Seasons of the Heart from Me, Revolutionary Friend. Um, now, when you, you mentioned that there is, there's craft that goes into any art form, and the, the kinds of craft decisions that you make um, when you write a poem in English, which you do very rarely versus a poem that you, that you make when you write in Jamaican English, are different. Um, You've mentioned before that um, music, you listen to the music and the words and the words and the music, and sort of the, those processes go along together. Is that a similar process when you're writing in Jamaican English? Is that similar also for what you're doing when you're writing in... I'm more self-conscious of it when I'm writing in Jamaican language because the Jamaican language lends itself um, more easily um, to a musical uh, combination because of the inherent musicality of the language itself. And where do you think that inherent musicality, how is it that Jamaican English has become sort of, or is more musical than um, standard I think English? it's to do with the African, um, the African elements of the language. Um, and um, that is, it, the language has just evolved in that way um, because of its African elements. Let's talk a little bit about. And of course, I know. I guess in all cultures, I guess there's all, there's always a relationship between language and music. I, I suspect that. I mean, one listen to the way Arabs speak and the way Arabs sing, um, or the way um, um, Germans um, talk and the way Germans sing, and uh, you know, there's. I, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, idea. There's something inherently political about the work that you do. Not, I mean, you've you've done a lot of overt political activism. You've been involved in the Black Panthers and in many other groups, um, and you still are. Um, in well, I came to poetry through politics. For me, in the very beginning, writing verse was a political act, and poetry a cultural weapon in the struggle for black liberation. 
And later on, I discovered that there was more to poetry than that. But that's how I began to write. That's that's my that was my way into writing into into poetry. And I was always attracted to the political poets like Pablo Neruda, the poets of negritude, um, poets like Martin Carter from Guyana, Kamau Brathwaite, and so on. And the poets of negritude being Amy Cesar and um, Amy Cesar, um, Leopold Senghor, uh, Dumas, and um, Leon Dumasan. Now, were you reading their work as you were thinking about writing your own, or were you in conversation? I was just beginning to get into poetry, and um, when I began to re- read the I hadn't begun to write in the Jamaican write Jamaican verse, and I was writing a lot of verbose nonsense. Really, <laughs> after you read, after you've read someone like Senghor, you just get intoxicated with words, you know, and and you just write a lot of um, stuff that uh, <laughs> really doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but um, eventually, um, I found my own voice. Um, not not when I not initially when I began to write in um, in Jamaican verse that took me a long it was a long time after maybe twenty years later I think I found my voice it does take some time because um, you you're trying to do something original with poetry and um, there no you you don't have a model to to um, model yourself on and uh, so you're inventing as you go along it takes a long time how did you know. Um, you feel it. You f- you feel that intuitively. And is there a poem you can point to that was one of the ones where you're like, aha, here it is? I think um, my poem, Reggae Fidada, was one of the first poems um, that I felt that I was getting close to. Um, um, don't ask me to read it now because I, I don't want to preempt what I'm doing later on today um, to find in my voice. And was it something that came to you as you were writing it, or did you look back on it and say... Oh, no, I was just, it. after I'd written it, I thought to myself, wow, I've never written anything like this before. This is something new. This is a new departure for me, so it must mean something. Will you talk a little bit about the quality or what it was that, that, that was new and different? What were the departures? I, no, I won't talk about that. I hate analyzing my own work. I'm, I create it. It's for other people to put their own gloss on it. Fair enough. <laughs> well, when you you your poetry is it's important to you. You've mentioned several times that your poetry is um, of the people, the the Jamaican people and the immigrant um, Caribbean immigrants in London or in England, um, and that it's important that it be accessible to them. And you've also mentioned that um, the critics haven't known, in some senses, what to do with it because they, there was nothing like it that they could sort of say, "Ah, this is." Here, um, nonetheless, um, you've made it into this sort of um, group of immortals with the the Penguin Classics. Um, well, all that means is only goes to show that if you're around long enough, sooner or later, someone <laughs> will take notice of you. Well, they, t- they took notice of you a while back. <laughs> it's been 15 years since they did, and you haven't been around that long. <laughs> but um, th- th- that's sort of that's a really interesting. Um, straddling of categories. Well, I'd I'd written, um, you said I hadn't been around for that long, but um, it was, um, I'd been around um, for about 30 years before before the British literary establishment even realized that I was, existed. 
I never thought to become a part of that world. I didn't seek, um, I didn't seek um, validation from the arbiters of British literary taste. I, that wasn't part of my scene at all. Will you talk a bit about a little bit about what your scene was? What you were? Well, I was writing verse, as as I said, um, as a, as as both a part as a my political and cultural activity, and um, um, writing about uh, struggle, some struggles that I was involved in, and using poetry um, as a way of um, communicating ideas and communicating um, experience. Was it a surprise then when you made it into the sort of British literary canon? Um, I don't know if I've made it into British into the British literary canon. I think that was a nice, mar- good marketing strategy by Penguin. <laughs> um, but yes, I was as. Um, in fact, in the beginning, I was very suspicious. I thought, why on earth do they want to publish me? I mean, I've been around for all these years. I've been ignored by the British literary establishment. Um, I had no desire to become part of that scene. Um, but I guess that I'd created an audience, um, not only in England, but all over the world. And um, it was inevitable that someone would um, um, take notice of that. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the sort of crossover audience experience. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Linton Quasi Johnson. We'll be right back. Afternoon. You're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My guest today is Linton Quasi Johnson. We're talking about his work and life and preoccupations and occupations. Um, we were just listening. The music we've been listening to in the breaks and at the beginning of the show has been his own. But the piece that I just played was the message from Grandmaster Flash, rap artist. And I played it because it was something that I've heard you mention um, as a piece of rap that you love. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about the role um, or the interrelationship. You've talked about both sides of the Atlantic and the black experience and some parallels in the first part of the show. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about um, dub poetry, um, how you see yourself as a, as a musician and a poet and a dub poet, and then the role of rap. Wow, wow it's a load of stuff to talk about. Um, well, dive in. <laughs> um, well, to, to begin with Grandmaster Flash, for me, that was the is the best um, rap record I've ever heard. And I've never heard anybody any rapper do anything to um, surpass that. And as far as I'm concerned, if you want to um, be a great rapper artist, you have to do something of the same um, standard as Grandmaster Flash's The Message, because that, that for me is like poetry. What it is poetry. Um, 
Um, the thing about rap is that the Jamaican DJs, um, you know, people um, nowadays might know about um, Elephant Man and Capleton and all these people, but the the the, the grandfather of um, Jamaican um, the DJ tradition, dancehall tradition, is Uroy. And people like Uroy, they used to um, imitate the style of the American R&B um, jive talkers like King Pleasure and, and Louis Jordan and all these guys. Yeah, until people like Big Youth um, and another generation of DJs Jamaicanized that, that, that art form pr properly. Um, um, what the DJs uh, from Big Youth period onwards um, they, they were working with uh, um, dub which is like um, deconstructed reggae drum and bass style with sound effects which was very sparse and provided a perfect background for the DJs to improvise their lyrics um, it seems to me that what rap has done and hip hop has done is to appropriate the techniques of dub and um, that the um, the rap artists of, uh, are just um, doing the same thing that the the Jamaican DJs um, were doing. Um, you know, sometimes we used to have a sing J style in Jamaica where a singer would sing maybe a chorus, and then the DJ would use that as the point of departure to comment on and uh, make statements. And I, I see the same thing happening happening happens with with rap music. So the whole thing has come full circle if you like and there's a whole history of relationship between Jamaican popular music and American R&B you know uh, we, we were very much influenced by American R&B music in the evolution of um, our own native music um, nearly everybody modeled themselves all the singers modeled themselves on Sam Cooke and um, uh, Curtis Mayfield and these guys you know so um, yeah and again it's the it's the old plantation experience, um, you know, um, interplaying with each other. Kwame Dawes, the Jamaican poet, uh, was on the show earlier this year, and he said that he grew up listening to some reggae songs that were covers of R&B tunes, and when he heard the original R&B tune, he said, what is that, Tara? What have they done to our song? <laughs> and, um, it, was, it was an interesting sort of, well, no, the original was actually this one, and he <laughs> Yeah. He sort of. Um, now, you from the very beginning, you've included music in your poetry, and your first band was a group called Rasta Love. Yeah, I began with drummers um, because um, one of the people, one of the people who inspired me. I mean, some of the poets who first inspired me were not Caribbean poets; they were African American poets. People like Sonia Sanchez, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Amiri Baraka, Don L. Lee, Langston Hughes. Um, and The Last Poets, and I, I discovered The Last Poets when I was in the Black Panther movement, and it just really freaked me out. It was these guys doing poetry in the language of the, the, the hip language of the, of the street, the hip, the hip language of the Afro-American Afro spoke, you know, street language, and, um, and using it as a, as a valid vehicle of poetic discourse accompanied by percussion. And I wanted to do a, a kind of a Jamaican version of the same thing. So I, I began working with a group of Rasta drummers that I went to school with. I played a bit of percussion myself, and that's how we started. That's how I started um, public performances. And you yourself are not Rasta? No. I went through my little Rasta phase, but I could not reconcile myself 
to the idea of Emperor Haile Selassie being God or um, the, the notion of repatriation back to Africa. I don't think one can turn back the clock of history. One wants to move forward in time rather than backwards in time. And that's something that you, when in, in all the political work that you've done. But of course, I want to emphasize that Rasta was very much an important part of my ex, um, cultural heritage because Rasta was f- um, um, did for the Jamaican consciousness what Black Power did for the um, African American consciousness, because Rasta said no to um, the, the, the um, colonial domination and um, posited an alternative. Um, way of living and a way of seeing the world. Let's talk a little bit more about crossover audience. When you you were somewhat surprised to find yourself um, celebrated by the British literary establishment, let's say it wasn't what you set out to do. That wasn't the scene. I'm not even celebrated by the British literary establishment. You know, it's just that they've taken notice of me. Taken notice of you. Well, you're certainly well celebrated around the world. in many audiences, black, white, Japanese. Um, so you've got a very broad audience. And um, the audience that you initially set out to um, portray and speak to um, is a much smaller audience. This is also true with reggae. Um, the, the, we've got lots of college kids in particular, lots of our listeners um, are not coming from the experience from which reggae hails, but are very much embracing the culture. How do you see the message or the, the art form working in these different All it contexts? means, all that means is that there's something, there's, a, there's an element of universality there, um, and that you don't have to begin with some idea of, oh, I'm going to be universal. You begin with the particular and you arrive at the universal. Because it speaks to people as opposed to Because it speaks to the human condition. Do you or or could you boil down to a couple of sort of key um, points what you want to appeal to or what your the what parts of what aspects of the human condition you are focusing on in your work? Freedom, social equality, justice. And let's talk a little bit about freedom. Um, I. Only because there's a there's a recent New York Times article in which um, freedom is a word that we talk about a lot in this country. It's the, the most US. abused word word in the United States of America. Well, that's what this article posits, and um, it says that um, that freedom is for those who have freedom is about choice. I want more opportunity to do this, and for those who don't have freedom, is more about um, the freedom not to live in a place that's that has so much struggle. Will you talk a little about about what you mean by freedom and and how that informs your work? I only have. Um one understanding of what freedom means, and that is probably what the dictionary says it it means. It means um, not to be oppressed, um, not to be enslaved, um, um, not to uh, have your life um, chances limited. Um, There's no other notion of freedom that I know other than the universal one. Well, let's talk about what's next. Um, you are in nineteen in the eighties. You started your record label, LKJ Records, and you record um, various artists, poets, and musicians. And um, you 
still tour. You're on your way to Medellin, I think, soon to Colombia. Yeah, that, but that's by myself, um, not with the band. I, you know, I wear two hats. I have one, um, one hat um, symbolizes the literary, and the other, the um, my my profession as a reggae artist, and I'm comfortable doing both. When I want to earn some money, I go on the road with the band, and uh, we do gigs. Sometimes we play to as many as 20,000 people. And on the other hand, um, I do poetry readings where sometimes the audience is as small as maybe 150 people, and they're equally um, satisfying. Do you approach them? I mean, I, I, I would think this, the answer to this may be obvious, but how do you approach them differently? Well, you approach them in the, in differently insofar as um, when you're on stage with a band, you know it's people have paid money to come to be entertained. And um, if you're playing in Germany or in France or in Switzerland, uh, people might have an idea of what you're saying insofar as they understand English or understand versions of English. Um, and um, that it's it's... You know, you're an entertainer, so you're there to entertain people. I'm doing the same. I'm using the same material, only that I'm using it with music. Um, and it's less intense because um, the audience can be focusing on, you know, the drummer or the keyboard player or the horn section. Whereas when I'm doing a poetry reading, you know, it's just me alone on the stage. And it's I'm like a stand-up comic. It's 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 there are no gimmicks, no antics, or nothing. It's just the voice, and I'm either made um, or broken by the voice, and uh, it's more intimate, and um, obviously more intense. Well, we are about out of time, but it's been such a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Thank you for joining us. We will be followed up with a sports report. I'd like to thank Jason Adam Voss for sitting in for our regular engineer, Chaz Barrett, and thank you, Linton Quasi Johnson, for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and we're going to leave you with another track from one of Linton Quasi Johnson's CDs. This is called Sense Out of Nonsense.
What the fool? The Daily Sports Report. Michigan with the ball at the Michigan State 21-yard line. Three wide receivers, two far, one near. Henny under center. He'll drop back to pass. Looks for Edwards in the end zone. Jump ball. And it is caught by Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards in the back of the end zone. Gets the touchdown for the Wolverines. And the comeback is almost complete. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. I am your host, Tony Bolton, joined with the usual suspects, Christian Scooter Montgomery, sorry about that, and Rob Solomon and Steve Schuster behind the glass doing the engineering for us. Uh, let's start things off with uh, some, well, let's go national. Let's go national. national. Um, not a very light sports day, but I guess we could start with NFL um, free agency. Um, got 